0: We we can often only grasp the significance of something once we know enough background information about that thing. Um, that, that that's just true in most situations. That that to see something as significant, we, we need to know something about what we're looking at. Uh, take for instance the name Tiger Woods. All right, take 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 that name, Tiger Woods. I'm sure everyone in here has heard that name, but this year, the name Tiger Woods has been on top of the leaderboards in golf. Now, if you are someone who who comes into our country has has no knowledge of golf, no knowledge of of who any of these golfers are, and you and you just see a headline, see the name Tiger Woods near near the top of a leaderboard, that's going to mean nothing to you, except that that's a cool name. All right, so it's it's, it's not going to mean anything to you though. Just just it's it's a name on a on a board of players, and and that's all you know. But if, if you know that Tiger Woods is one of the greatest golfers of all time, that when he was young, he just began storming through professional golf, winning major after major after major, well on his way to breaking the record for major championships by any golfer ever. And then one day, out of nowhere his serial adultery becomes public knowledge for the whole world to see. And in an instant, his career plummets south. And he is a broken player and in many ways appears to be a broken man he tries to make his way back, but he continues to have injury after injury after injury. He has major back issues. He has several back surgeries. He keeps trying to come back, and, 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 and just another surgery comes up, and he's firing in his caddies, and, and it, just, it just appears that there's no way he can regain what he once was. He's just a shell of himself. And then on top of that, you, you read the news, and you find out that he's arrested for a DUI because he was overdosing on his pain medicine. And then that very year you see his name on the top of the leaderboard in a major championship. If you know that background about Tiger Woods, and then you see that name there in the year 2018, you know something significant is happening there. There's a significance to that that you know because you know all the background information. But if you don't know any of that, then that's just a name, right? Well, well, this is true in regards to Scripture. When when we read the Bible, the more background information we have, the more significance we can see. And, And that is true most of all when it comes to the meaning and significance of the cross of Christ. The more background information we have, the more we can see the significance of who Jesus is and what he did when he died on the cross. And so, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, Shirley had in mind, when he wrote John chapters 18 and 19, a plethora of Old Testament background that was informing what he was writing and seeing and what he was intending for us to see. And so today, we are going to do a little bit of extra Bible reading. We are going to take some time to look at some background because we want to not only see What John says here, but we want to have the background in our minds and hearts so that we can understand the significance of what he is saying. And so, if you would open your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 12. You know that the book of Exodus uh, is about God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And God sends plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh says again and again, No, 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 I will not let your people go. And God threatens a final plague in Exodus 12, where he will strike down the firstborn of every house in Egypt, and he institutes something called the Passover, because this is the night that he will deliver Israel from Egypt. So in Exodus 12, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, ready to go. You eat it ready to go. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look down a little bit further in the chapter at verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. That's the first Passover. The Lord commanded them to take a lamb, to kill it, to put the blood on the doorpost. And when they did, when he passed through, if he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would not execute his judgment on that house. And Israel did so. And while all the land of Egypt lost their firstborns, Israel was delivered from Egypt that night. Turn your Bibles now to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, we have a psalm that is about the Lord's anointed, the king. And the psalm reads this way, Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so this psalm gives us a picture of all the rulers of the world gathering together against God and against his anointed king. And the Lord is in heaven laughing at them. Laughing at them because he has set his king on his holy hill and his king. Will terrify them in his wrath, and he will reign over all the earth, and only those kings who pay homage to the sun will find a refuge on that day. That's what Psalm 2 says. "This, this is the Lord's anointed, and He will reign over all the earth, over all the rulers that conspire against him. He is God's anointed king. That's Psalm two, finally, turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, gives a prediction of a suffering servant. Starting in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, she shall see and be satisfied." It's the prediction of a suffering servant who would come and bear the guilt of God's people like a lamb led to a slaughter, would open not his mouth, would would take on the weight of their sin and make it so that they would be accounted righteous, though he alone was righteous. Isaiah 53. These, These three passages were written hundreds of years apart, and they seemingly have little to do with each other. You have a Passover lamb, You have an anointed king. You have a suffering servant. Written in three different situations, three different contexts, hundreds of years apart. But here's the thing. John had these passages in mind when he wrote John 18 and 19. John saw all of these things converging at one point in time. All of these truths converging on one person. And so let's open then to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And today we are going to read again, I told you, a lot of Bible reading today, we're going to read John 18 from 28 through 19, 16. And I want to read this slowly and deliberately and help us to just Enter into this story. Enter into this stage of Jesus' passion. This is Jesus' trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. And I just want us to enter into this right now and hear and see what Jesus went through for us. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas! Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews! and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I will tell you guys, that text is full and loaded. It is it is just dripping with truth. And we could literally, truly sit here for hours and hours and, and discuss the truth that John is communicating in this text. I want us to see something that I think will be very helpful for us to digest the truths that John is seeking to communicate. And and before I do this, I want to remind you that, that the Gospels are theological history. Theological history. What I mean by that is the Gospels record history. They record what really happened. This really happened. The Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts and accurate oral tradition, and and they record history, but they are theological history. They are history that is recorded to make known truths about who God is, and who we are, and who Christ is, and what Christ did, and how we should respond. It, It is a theological history. And so as John wrote his gospel, he was not only recording what happened, but he was recording it in such a way as to communicate truth to us about who Jesus is. And so, in our text today, he does this in a very unique way. And there's a a slide here I want Braden to put up for us that will show you this, um, that that John has this mirror pattern here. It's this mirror pattern. Let's just walk through this for a second, because I think once we see this, it will help us to make sense of how we read this text and how we draw out truth from this text. And so, so, there's this mirror pattern. You see the first section A, the Jews deliver Jesus to Pilate. That's what's happening in that section, right? The last section, look at the bottom. Pilate delivers Jesus back to the Jews. And and, and so the the first and and last sections here have this mirror imaging. They they bring Jesus to Pilate, and then at the end, Pilate, he he delivers them over. He he gives them what they want, all right? Now, then you go further in to B, you have these two sections of Pilate questioning Jesus. Pilate before Jesus questioning Jesus and Jesus answering. You have have that happen two times, right after that first section and right before the last section. And then right in the middle, see, you you have two events. Barabbas is freed and Jesus is flogged. You guys see that? So it's a mirror that John's walking us through and, and what that mirror does, what, what what he's doing is he's he's saying, read each of those sections together, read them together, read, read that first A with that second A, and that first B with that second B, and that C with that C. Does that make sense? And he's and as we do that, as we do that, he, we're going to see that John in each of those sections, he's he's emphasizing certain themes. In, in both the first and last section, he's emphasizing something, and 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 same with the second and the third, and so. So it it is a literary device he's using. And as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we we have seen that John is a very profound creative writer, isn't he? And so so we see this here. On on one level, this just records what happened. The sequence of events here is exactly what happened that day. But John is arranging it in such a way that he wants us to to see what he's emphasizing, and and he's he's giving us clues. And so... What we're going to do now is we walk through, and is just going to keep that up so we can uh, keep our place as we go, but we're going to look at each of those sections in turn. And what we're going to do is we're going to see three themes that John is emphasizing in this trial. He, he emphasizes three themes, and as we see those themes, we're going to see what John is saying about who Jesus is at this point in Jesus' passion. And so three themes that John emphasizes in Jesus' trial before Pilate, Okay? So first theme, point A. John emphasizes the Passover and Jesus' death. John emphasizes the Passover and Jesus' death. Look down at this first section, verses 28 through 32. They bring Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate. And the text tells us there in verse 28, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. All right, so they bring in to Pilate, but they don't go inside. Because if they go inside, to, to enter a Gentile's house would, would, would make them unclean. And if they were unclean, they would not be able to continue the Passover feast, which has started this, at this time in Jerusalem. And so they are scrupulous about, we are not going to be defiled. We are going to be clean people who can celebrate our God at the Passover. That that is what they are doing. No way are we going in there, right? But at the same time, what are they doing in this very moment? What are they doing? They are murdering the Son of God. They are bringing Jesus, an innocent man who they have no actual charges against, to die. They want him dead. They they say it. We can't put him to death. You need to do it. And so the the irony here is that while they are are taking Jesus to Pilate's headquarters and not entering so as to remain undefiled, they are committing the most terrible sin in all of history. They are defiling themselves truly as they offer Jesus up to be murdered. Now, skip down to the last section. There's a pair here, right? So skip down to chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. That's the Jews deliver Jesus to Pilate. Now Pilate delivers Jesus back to the Jews. In in this section, Pilate becomes convinced that he should release Jesus. But, But the Jews essentially blackmail him into saying, if you do that, you're not Caesar's friend. And so Pilate decides, okay, okay, I'm going to let them have what they want. And he decides to sentence him. And so look, he he sits down on the judgment seat, verse 13. He sits down on the judgment seat to make his verdict. What you would expect next in the text is the verdict. He sits down, he makes his verdict. But what does John put in there? He sits down on the judgment seat, verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Why does John say that there? The only reason he says that is because he wants us to be thinking Passover. There's no reason why he needs to put that in the text at that point. John is saying, think Passover. Connect the Passover with Jesus' death. Connect the Passover with what is happening here. You guys see that? What he is doing is he is showing us in this first mirror pair that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the one the Passover pointed to. He's the spotless lamb whose blood is on the doorposts. And when God comes in judgment and he sees that blood on someone's life, he passes over that person's life. Jesus is the spotless Passover lamb. And while the Jews think that they are remaining undefiled in order to eat the Passover. They are actually defiling themselves by orchestrating the murder of the true Passover lamb. They they are orchestrating this death. But but look, look back in the first section, verse verse 32. They say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so who's in charge here? Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is sacrificing himself as the Passover lamb. They're orchestrating it, and they are guilty, and they are defiling themselves. But Jesus is the one in this moment who is fulfilling the truth that he will be lifted up on a tree, crucified, a sacrificial lamb for his people. He is the true Passover lamb. And so, and so that's the first theme that John wants us to see. He wants to see to see Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the true Passover lamb. The, the, the Passover in the Old Testament was a shadow of the work Jesus would do here to deliver his people, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death and wrath forever. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Now let's go to the next section, B. Pilate questions Jesus, all right? This section emphasizes, the, the, the theme that John emphasizes is authority and kinship. He emphasizes authority and Jesus' kingdom. Look down at this, this first half of the pair, verses 33 through 38. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And we know that this was the political charge that the Jews initially brought to Pilate when he gave them a Roman cohort of soldiers to arrest him. We know that that. That they didn't come to Jesus with theological, or come to Pilate with theological accusations. They came saying he, he's making himself a king. And so Pilate says, are, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you are, then you're a political threat to Rome. If you say you're the king of the Jews, then, then you're a political threat and, and we, we need to put you to death. Now, Jesus could say, No, I'm not. Or he could say, Yes, I am. But notice how he answers. In verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So so Jesus does not say he is a king, but he says he has a kingdom. And he says that his kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. It's not from the world. It's not like the world. It's not of the world, but but it's a heavenly kingdom. It's it's a kingdom that's from God himself. It's, It's not like the kingdoms of this world. You see, Jesus didn't come to fight. Jesus didn't come to gain political power. What, what did he come to do? Look what he says in verse 37. You say that I'm a Cain. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. He didn't come to fight. He came to bear witness to the truth. He didn't come to establish a political kingdom. He came to tell people how to be in the eternal kingdom. He came to bear witness to the truth. And we know from earlier in the Gospel of John, what what is the truth? Jesus himself is the truth. He is the truth. And so he came to bear witness to himself. He came to bear witness to the fact that if you want to be part of the true kingdom of God, you come through me. And so, in this moment, Jesus, on the one hand, is showing Pilate, I'm no threat to you. I, I'm innocent here. I'm not, I'm not claiming any political uprising here. But at the same time, he, he affirms, but I have a kingdom. It's not from this world. It's not like this world's. And, and then look what he says. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You know, in that moment, Jesus is all of a sudden challenging Pilate. he's essentially saying, will you listen to my voice? Do you believe in me? And and Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate, for his part, does not listen to the voice of Jesus. He shows that he is not on the side of truth. He shows that he is not going to submit to Jesus as his king. Now look down at the second part of this, verses 8 through 11, the, the, the second time Pilate questions Jesus. Jesus has just heard that Pilate has just heard that Jesus makes himself the Son of God, and Pilate is afraid. He's frightened. He just had this man flogged. Did he just flog someone who is the Son of God? And so so he is fearful here. And he comes to Jesus, he says, where are you from? Where are you from? And Jesus gives him no answer. Jesus is just silent. And this kind of riles up Pilate, doesn't it? He says, don't you know that I have authority to release you or I have authority to crucify you? Will you dare be silent to me? Don't you know I can do whatever I want with you right now? You are completely in my hands, Jesus. And it's true, wasn't it? I mean, in that moment, Pilate could do whatever he wanted with Jesus. He could release him or he could crucify him. But look how Jesus responds. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You think you have authority, but you have a given, limited authority. You would have no authority over me unless the one from above, unless God gave it to you. And, And he is the higher authority and he is the one in charge right now. You, Pilate, are not in charge. He is in charge. You know, after this exchange, Pilate, the text tells us he seeks to release Jesus. He seeks to release him, but, but then he doesn't. Because he becomes afraid when the Jews say, we're going to tell Caesar. We're going to tell Caesar if you release Jesus. And you're, you're, you're no friend of Caesar if you let a political threat go. And so Pilate, who just said, I have authority to release you or crucify you. I mean, truly, he, he's, just, he's just being pulled along here. He has no ability to follow through on what he says. He thinks he has authority, but he's actually just being controlled by the whims of the people. Remember what Psalm 2 said? It said, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. John is showing us here that Jesus is this anointed king of Psalm 2. Pilate is a ruler whose limited authority has been given to him by God, and he's using that authority to conspire against Jesus the king and to preserve his own limited power. He thinks he has power. He's he's conspiring against Jesus, and Jesus is God's true anointed king, who we know will reign over the nations who conspire against him in the kingdom of God. He's, He's the true heavenly king, and Jesus affirms that here. He says, I have a kingdom that's not from this world. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so we have this contrast, and John is showing us here Pilate is no king at all. Pilate is no ruler at all. Jesus is the true king. And so that's section two. Finally, the third theme the third theme that John gives us is, is this John emphasizes guilt, innocence, and suffering. Guilt, innocence, and suffering. Look at verses 38 through 40. We're we're in section C here on that outline, section C verses 38 through 30. First, notice what happens. Pilate offers them Barabbas. Barabbas is a robber. Barabbas is an insurrectionist. Barabbas is actually a political threat. We know from the other Gospels that Barabbas committed murder in an uprising against the Romans. (laughs) He's the political threat here. He is guilty. Everyone knows it. And Pilate, assuming they will choose Barabbas, assuming they will choose Jesus, says, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? Who should I release to you? And they choose Barabbas. They they are so set against Jesus that they choose this insurrectionist. They choose this murderer. They choose this robber. They choose the guilty one to go free. Now look also three times. What does Pilate say? Look at verse 38. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Verse 4, I find no guilt in him. Verse 6, I find no guilt in him. Over and over and over again, Pilate declares Jesus' innocence. He is innocent of all the charges they've brought. And so they finally say, okay, this political accusation is not working. Pilate, here's here's the deal. Here's, Here's what's really going on. We have a law about blasphemy. We have a law that says if someone says they're the Son of God, they should be put to death. And he has said he's the Son of God. They're right, aren't they? Has Jesus not said over and over again that he is one with the Father, that he is the Son? They're right. Yet they're wrong. (laughs) Yet they are so wrong because Jesus has demonstrated over and over again through his words and his works that his claim is true. This isn't blasphemy because it's true. He is the Son of God, and they're rejecting him. And so Jesus is innocent. But then then look, Barabbas is guilty, and he goes free. Jesus is innocent, and what happens to Jesus? He is flogged, beaten over and over again on his back. He is mocked by the soldiers. He has a crown of thorns pressed into his brow. He has a purple robe put on his back to make fun of him. He is beaten around by the soldiers. He is brought before as a spectacle for all to see, in complete shame. The guilty goes free, and the innocent one is subjected to this sort of suffering. And John is making a point that Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The guilty one goes free while the innocent one suffers. The the guilty one bears no penalty, but the innocent one bears the penalty he doesn't deserve. Jesus is the one on whom the Lord laid the iniquity of the guilty. He is the true suffering servant. And so we get these three pictures as we go through that text and as we see this, this mirror image that that John gives us. We see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. We see that he's the anointed king and we see he's the suffering servant and we see that he's all of these things at the same time. He is all of these things at, at the exact same time. Jesus is the one in whom all of these realities converge and, and so if we if we put it all together who is Jesus according to John 18 28 through 1916 who is Jesus? He is the sacrificial king. He is the sacrificial king. The, the big idea, the, the, the main idea today is this. Jesus is the anointed king who bears the guilt of rebel sinners so that the wrath of God may pass over them and they can live forever in his coming kingdom. He is the anointed King who bears the guilt of rebel sinners, so that the wrath of God may pass over them, and they can live forever in his coming Kingdom. He's the anointed King who bears the guilt of rebel sinners, so that the wrath of God may pass over them, and those rebel sinners can live forever in his coming Kingdom. He is the sacrificial King. I want to invite the music team to come up as we close. And as they come up, I want you to look down at your text to verse 14. Chapter 19, verse 14. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. He spoke it sarcastically, didn't he? He spoke it to irritate them. He spoke it to mock Jesus. But he spoke better than he knew. The the bloodied, mocked man before them with the crown of thorns in his head and a purple robe over his beaten back is truly the king of Israel. He is truly the king of the nations. He is truly the king of kings. He is the Christ. And today, God calls us, behold your king. Behold your king, Redeemer Church. Behold your king in his suffering. Understand that when you see your king in his suffering, what you are seeing is your sin. What you are seeing is your guilt. What you are seeing is your shame. When you see your king in his suffering, you are seeing what you deserve. Behold your king in his suffering. Behold your king in his grace. Behold him in his grace, because your king suffered that way willingly for you. He is a king that is full of grace to guilty rebels. Like Barabbas, we are guilty and we get to go free. We, we are recipients of the grace of God And that grace does not give us what we deserve. It gives us what we don't deserve. He is suffering that way because he is a king that is full of grace to you. He is not punishing you for what you deserve. He's letting you go free. Behold your king in his righteousness. Behold him in his righteousness because that grace that lets us go free does not come to us free, does it? It is free grace, but it comes to us at the cost of Jesus bearing our sins, of Jesus taking the penalty, of him bearing the iniquity, bearing the guilt, bearing the shame, because he's righteous. Because he's righteous. He will not let sin go unpunished. He is a holy king. He is a just king. As we read in the call to worship, he is a king who executes justice. But he executes justice by bearing the penalty in his own body. So behold your king in his suffering, and behold him in his grace, and behold him in his righteousness, but underneath all that, behold your king in his love. This is his love that we're looking at. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Why would Jesus suffer this way? Why would he give you grace? Why would he bear the penalty for you? Because he loves you, church. Jesus loves you. His love is perfect for you. It is unending. It is something that you cannot shake. He loves you, and you are his bride, and he laid down his life for you, and you will be with him forever and ever. Know this morning, as you behold Jesus in this moment, in his suffering, that he loves you, and he laid down his life for you. And finally, behold your king in his reign. Behold him in his reign because though in this moment he is bloodied and he is beaten and he is suffering and he is mocked and he is shamed, he died and then he rose again. And he rose and he ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God reigning over the kingdom. The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs because he has set his king on his holy hill. Jesus reigns. And Jesus will return, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So behold your king in his reign. He will return, and he will live with us forever, our king who gave himself for us. So this morning, let's stand and let's behold our king and rejoice in our king together.